0: in Luke chapter 4, we've just finished this interesting genealogy which tells us more about Jesus than just a list of names. It gives us an understanding of his nature, his character, what he is called to do, the kind of person he is called to be, specifically the Son of God. That is who and what he is, and that's how it ends at the end of chapter 3. Uh, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. And as I said, you could chop out everything from the very beginning of the genealogy where it says that he was uh, the son as a thought of Joseph, son of, and you could cut it from there all the way through to God. He is the son of God. And the genealogy teaches that us that. It teaches us that he is the son of God, and through him we are all related together as sons and daughters of God. Because this is a universal genealogy, it doesn't just go back to Abraham as Matthews does, it goes all the way back to Adam. And in that, it proclaims that all humans are interrelated, and all humans are related to Jesus, and all humans are sons and daughters of God, fundamentally and we share a kinship with Jesus. For at that point it then continues into chapter 4. Now keep in mind also that the original, the autograph, the original of Luke's Gospel had no chapters or verses. Chapters and verses were added later. Chapters were added first, then versification came along a lot later. Uh, Fairly recently actually in the history of the transmission of the Bible were verses added in and how they divide up sometimes makes sense sometimes doesn't the same is true for chapters sometimes the chapter division makes sense sometimes it makes no sense and uh, it, it, keep in mind that as we read through the gospel sometimes these stories are more closely linked than we realize that, that chapter division which we see is separating it off really shouldn't be there and in some ways that's true here because we go from this proclamation about Jesus being the Son of God, to now the temptation in which we find out what that means. What does it mean to be the Son of God? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where for forty days he was tempted by the devil." Now, that first right there kind of bothers me. If you think about it, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He, he had, when he was baptized, this, this, he sees the Holy Spirit coming down upon him like a dove and the voice of God, this is my beloved son with you, I'm well pleased. I mean, you have this fabulous scene. He Now it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit and you think that'd be a wonderful thing and he'd get all sorts of grace and wonderful blessings. What happens? No, he gets let out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. I don't necessarily want that to happen. When people say, are you filled with the Holy Ghost? Response could very well be, why should I want to be since that ends up leading me out into the desert to be tempted by the devil? I mean, you could respond that way. This is not necessarily something that is uh, comfortable here. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. The Judean wilderness is very much desert. We're not talking prairie or anything like that. We're not talking like West Texas. We're talking Death Valley type of deserts. Where for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. Well, I would think so. I mean, after 40 days, you're going to be hungry. You're going to be hungry.
1: That's the first diet.
0: <laughs> well, kind of. Uh, there are plenty of other diets in Scripture but, uh, and, and other examples of this kind of thing. It doesn't say he fasted like it does over in Matthew. It says he simply ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, at the end of the 40 days he was famished so this doesn't this temptation doesn't occur during the 40 days it occurs at the end of the 40 days when Jesus would be theoretically the most vulnerable the most open to suggestion (coughs) the most temptable okay and it says that it says that he was tempted by the devil There are other possible translations there. Does anybody have a different translation than tempted?
1: It's just what the devil said to him.
0: Well, what what is it in verse two where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil? Anybody have anything else there (laughs) other than the word tempted? Could possibly be translated as tested, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: tried. Examined, that's the concept here. This temptation concept is part of it, but you weight it more heavily with the testing concept. This is an opportunity for the devil to gauge this son of God's muster. Let's find out if he really is up to it. Let's find out if this really is whom the Holy Spirit seems to think he is. Let's find out. That kind of testing. And when they were over, he was famished, starving, really, really, really hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, notice it's a question. Now it's a question that assumes the answer is yes, but it's still a question. This is what I said when I said this is more like a testing, a, an examination. Let's find out if this is real. If you are the son of God, you could even translate that possibly, if, if you really are the son of God, if you really are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Hmm. Hmm. Command Now, he, if he's the son of God, don't you think that that Closeness to the deity would give him the ability to transform a rock into a loaf of bread. I mean, that's the question there. If you really are, do it. Prove you are. Show some magic tricks. Give us a sign. By the way, we will hear that again and again and again from people who encounter Jesus throughout Luke's gospel and in the other gospels. And in fact, we hear it again and again even to this day. In difficult moments, we often ask for a sign, a miracle. If you really are the Son of God, command this stone. It's like he's holding up a rock to him. Command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Now he's famished. He's starving. I can remember when I was at SMU and I was a walk-on third string center for the SMU Mustangs in 1985. And I can remember we were practicing out in o b Stadium across Mockingbird Lane from Mrs. Baird's Baird. bread <laughs> bakery. Yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been in the dorm room
1: out there. And this
0: divine holy odor. Oh, yeah wafts across especially when the wind would blow from the south wafts across mockingbird lane and we're out there practicing our little hearts out and suddenly we get that odor of baking bread which has got to be one of the most divine odors ever underline highlighted exclamation did
1: that make you practice better or worse?
0: It makes you want to run more quickly towards the end zone that faces Mrs. Baird's bread and not stop, but keep going.
1: You know that strip with those restaurants right around there. Yes. And that bread bakery sold them more stuff at night. They uh-huh. make a lot at night, and then a went right across the dorms. Dollar oh. dollar. <laughs> and there
0: was a, there is an, there was a second day bread shop right yeah. in front of the bakery, and that was the that second hand or second day bread shop, second day bread shop sold more than any other yeah. <laughs> in their entire chain because of that smell, and I can remember going there plenty of times after practice to get some of that wonderful glorious bread. Now, that's the setting, and that's the temptation. And you could just, I mean, prove you are the son of God, turn this rock into a loaf of Mrs. Baird's freshly baked bread. I'm sorry, I would have failed right then and there. Abracadabra, alakazam, whatever you got to say, and whammo. Give me some butter, put it in a microwave, and let's eat. Amen. that puts it into a little bit of the temptation level that we're talking about here as well as the test level what did Jesus answer him? verse 4, Jesus answered him
1: man shall not live by bread alone
0: (laughs) (laughs) it is written or it is said possibly there are several variants here in the textual history one of them is, is that it is written Another one is, is that it is said, one does not live by bread alone.
1: A more inclusive translation. Well, (laughs) Well, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is the NRSV. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Yeah, but it, it simply says, we don't live by bread alone. There's other things that are more important than bread. Matthew adds but by every word that comes from the mouth of God which is a direct quote Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy here and he doesn't completely quote it in Luke whereas over in Matthew it indicates that he does he finishes the verse man does not live by bread alone it's not just the basic sustenance that we need we need something more than that what might we need well we'll find out with the next two temptations this is setting the stage for it. Matthew front loads the answer by every, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Luke tempts us with it. <laughs> he lets us wait for it. We're gonna, we're gonna get it a little better in Luke in that we're gonna have to work for the answer to this one. He just gives the response. It is written, one does not live by bread alone. Well, okay, that's true. Where is it written? Well, that's written in Deuteronomy, isn't it?
1: Deuteronomy 8
0: 3 Uh-huh, well, yeah. Uh, yep, Deuteronomy, yeah. 8 verse 3. That's the actual reference that he is quoting.
1: That's what Diane Dietz says on the- She's correct. She's, she's correct.
0: It's interesting. To answer this temptation, to answer this test, his first recourse is not to magic, is not to his power, is not to do what the devil tempts him to do, but instead to cite scripture. Hmm. Take that as your pattern. That's part of it. And and of course, Matthew front loads it by finishing the quote, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing, depending upon the word of God, by citing scripture. Luke doesn't reference that yet. Verse five, then, Now, we're not done, of course. I mean, once the devil finished, once you respond and stand up to the devil or to temptation or to testing and are successful with it in the first step, it ain't over, friends. It's almost never over, but especially in this case, it's not over. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority. For it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. Interesting. Uh, That's just a side note there. You mean the devil has the authority over all the kingdoms of the world? Yes. Well, I don't like that. Sorry. But yes. Yes. Now, think about it from within the context of the Hebraic worldview for just a second. All the kingdoms of the world, all the Gentile kingdoms of the world, are evil. They're powered by evil. They are oppressors. They are occupiers. The Roman Empire is an occupying force. The empires before it were occupying forces. Antiochus Epiphanes who succeeded Alexander the Great, the, Gre- the Greek invaders. Um, before them you had the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians. Think about it. In their context other powers are evil. The Philistines, the Jebusites, the Parasites, all of the various tribes and national groups and kingdoms that existed in the Promised Land prior to their occupation there and even after it, many of them had all of them had other gods. Those are evil too. So if you Think about it. From the Jewish perspective this makes perfect sense. Now yes it's God's world but God has for whatever reason given the devil authority over the kingdoms of the world. Hmm. Hold that for just a second. Hold that for just a second. To you I will give their glory and all this authority. For it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. Wow. Now, if Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah and the Messiah is supposed to be the conquering general or the conquering king of David to establish the kingdom of David afresh and overcome the powers and forces of darkness what better way to do it than simply to have it handed to him on a platter I don't have to do anything I don't have to die I don't have to preach the devil can give it to me and it'll be mine I can bypass all of, the, all of the difficult things that are going to be confronting me and just simply have it. Hmm. What's the price? If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Ooh. It always comes with a price. Getting things easily come with a price. And this is a very sinister, very sinister temptation. Matthew puts it last in the sequence, which is probably the more accurate placement. Because Luke has a different reason for placing the one he places last last. We'll talk about that later. But this is really sinister. You can get something that's good You can get something that's good and holy and what God's eventual intention is. Jesus reigning over all the world. Quick and easy. No fuss, no muss, no pain. Just I'll give it to you. And all you have to do is worship me. Literally prostrate yourself to me. All you have to do is fall down and worship me." Nobody even really needs to know. We're here in the wilderness. No one's around. No one needs to know. And you can have it all without any trouble. does not that like a good deal? Amen. Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus answered the first temptation by citing a passage of scripture. Jesus answers the second temptation the exact same way, by citing a passage of scripture. Interesting. File that one in your memory banks for a second and let's go to the third one. Then the devil... I mean, it's not over. I mean, you've already had this temptation to work magic, to feed yourself by your own power response from Scripture. Get it all easy. Get God's will done the easy, fast way, without any trouble, without any pain, without any difficulty. Jesus' response appealed to Scripture. Third temptation. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem which by the way for the Jewish mind frame and even for a gentile Christian mind frame depending upon Jewish thought here is the center of the universe the center of the world at least then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple wow I mean this would be just like right smack dab for everybody to see, on the pinnacle of the temple, in the very center of God's world. <clears throat> in the Roman Empire, the line, the statement was, all roads lead to Rome. And Rome was the center of the world. In the Jewish understanding of the universe, or of the world, all roads lead to Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem, no matter where you're going from. You go up to Jerusalem, or you go down to Galilee or you go down to the to the Jordan or you go down to Caesarea to the coast you go up to Jerusalem now keep in mind it's also Jerusalem is in the, in the hills up high so it, there's both a geographical concept here but it's also a theological geographical concept that Jerusalem is the center which is why Luke is putting this last the most The most evil of the temptations in many respects is this one, because it happens at the very center of God's world. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now The temple is the holiest place from which all sacrifices are performed, forgiveness is to be had, and God's presence dwells with humans in the holy of holies. And here he is, and that's in the very center of Jerusalem. So here he is in the center of the center of the world, at the very center of the religious life, on the pinnacle of it. The very top of it. And says to him, again, the third test. If you are the Son of God, if you really are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Well, Shazam! The devil has scripture for me. I defeated the devil with scripture of the first temptation. I defeated the devil with scripture of the second temptation. Now this devil's gonna give me scripture. How sweet! Jesus, well, let's 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 not move forward yet. Let's not move to the answer yet. Interesting. We have the third temptation. The third temptation. What is the third temptation? If the first temptation is depend upon, and this is, I'll just give it away. The, the first temptation is depend upon the self. Your own abilities. Your own power. Your own strength. Rather than upon God. We can't change your rock into bread. But Jesus could. If he truly is the son of God, he could do it. Instead, he depends upon the word of God. He quotes the word of God. Second temptation Second temptation temptation is is to get get things done easily, quickly, without any pain, without any difficulty. To get things done in the way that seems best to you, rather than God's way. To get it your way. I mean, it's the the Burger King theology. We'll have it your way (laughs) and not God's way. Oh, yeah. Well that horrible Sinatra is a wonderful singer. I love his music, except for that song. I did it my way. Is evil. Sorry, Marianne. It's evil. We
1: well,
0: like Frank. I love Frank. He's a fabulous singer. But that song Every time I hear it, I turn him off. I don't want to hear it, or if it's on my computer, I reach over and tap it to skip the song. Paul Anka
1: wrote
0: it. I don't know who wrote it, but it's uh, you're trying to blame it on Paul Paul (laughs) Anka. So the second temptation is to have it your way, to have it the easy way, to get it done in a way that has no pain, no difficulty, no hardship. It, it, it's it's the bypass of God's will, and His response is the same. Depend upon the Word of God, which is God's way to begin with. So the devil now attacks how we respond altogether by quoting Scripture. He will commend, command. Now, first of all, where is this one coming from? Where, where is this citation coming from? Psalms. The Psalms? Uh-huh. Which one? Ninety-one. Yes, ninety-one. My fav- one, of my, one of my favorite psalms. Uh-huh. A powerful psalm. My great-grandmother on my father's side used to read this psalm every single night. It formed her faith. And it was a favorite amongst the Jews, of course, too. This was their hymnal, friends. The Psalter was their hymnal. They knew it backwards and forwards. So the devil goes to a beloved song of the faith and cites it. Wow. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for here, for it is written. You've been just saying, it's written, it's written, it's written. Well, here, here it's written, Jesus. He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, after all, Satan's quoting scripture. Why not? Why not? How's Jesus going to answer this one? Satan's got scripture for it. It's a test. What would it be a test to do? What, what's, the, what's the nature behind this test? If the first one's to depend upon the self and the abilities that one has instead of upon God, and if the second one is to get it your own way instead of God's way, what's the third temptation? If you're, gonna, if you're not going to depend upon yourself, and if you're going to depend upon God, and do it God's way, the third temptation is to twist God's way to your own way Mm -hmm. To, to take God's word and spin it to what you want it to say to make God your servant by taking the word and manipulating it rather than depending upon it we're all good at that, especially preachers. Preachers are really good at that. And that's the division
1: of our religious worship, which man you put on
0: that. Uh-huh. Which is one of the scary things about it. One of the very scary things about proclaiming scripture. It is so easy to twist it. And that's what the devil is essentially doing here. The temptation is to take the word of God. And yes, cite the word of God as your authority, but then to use it in a way that gets your will done. And what, what, would be, what would be served by throwing yourself off from the pinnacle of the temple? In front, plain view of the high priest and everybody. And angels come swooping down and catch you before you splat on the ground there. And they catch you, and they rat you, and they just kind of thuddle you down. Everybody would see it and go, oh, it's the Messiah! Woohoo! And no preaching, no teaching, no gathering disciples, no, no trial, no death, nothing. It will be nice and easy and painless. And you're trusting in the Word of God, aren't you? So, sure. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Jesus answered, it is said do not put the Lord your God to the test Same word as before Test Don't 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 do to God what the devil is doing to Jesus <laughs> Don't examine, don't test, don't make don't make God prove God's self to you which is what the devil is doing to Jesus. Instead, do exactly what Jesus has done repeatedly. Don't make the scriptures become your lap dog or God become your lap dog to do things for you. But trust and depend upon what God says, God's way. Hmm. The third temptation is to take the word of God and spin it or twist it change it, pervert it, apply it as you will to get your way done instead of depending upon God in God's way. So if you succeed with the first temptation, you've got the second temptation. If you succeed with the second temptation, the third temptation is going to come along and trip you up every time. Because we can be really good about rationalizing our our way into this one. Jesus overcomes it the same way. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16. Wow. Okay. Questions? thoughts, observations. Matthew inverts the second and the third, puts the second last and the third second, principally because Luke is placing the temptation at the pinnacle of the temple last because Jerusalem is the direction to which everything goes and therefore the most sinister, the most evil of the temptations must be occurring there. And the way he tells it, it works beautifully. When you read it over in Matthew, as we will in Lent in preaching, you'll see that in some ways the other way is even more sinister. It places a different emphasis on the second, what here is the second temptation. But they all work together. No matter how you work it, no matter how you read it, no matter how you sequence them, you could even put the third, the first temptation third, and it would work. It doesn't matter how you sequence them. They are, they are all essentially saying the same thing.
1: How do you see the devil taking him to the
0: pinnacle in Jerusalem? Well,
1: how did it happen?
0: Luke says here. He just says that he took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. This entire sequence comes across as more or less kind of like a vision. vision, and you notice it happens at the end of a long period of of not eating. Yeah, of, he might
1: be given to him. <laughs> well, hallucinating. Kind of like <laughs>
0: it said that he was uh, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. Not eating can really cause some interesting things to occur. It's one of the reasons why monks fast. It's one of the reasons why we should fast on occasion, because it can do interesting things to your biochemistry. So that may be a factor here. It's a loop articulates this in physical terms, but it seems pretty clear that this is a spiritual event. I mean, how could he show him the kingdoms of the world from a mountaintop in Jerusalem? You could barely see the neighboring kingdom. You couldn't see Rome, you you know, you couldn't see Medo-Persia to the far east or beyond that ancient China. So I mean, it's not like you could really see the kingdoms of the world. There is a spiritual aspect here in all of that. In an instant. Then the devil led him and showed him in an instant. Suddenly, immediately. This is happening in a spiritual sense, so he wasn't, you know, helicoptered up to the pinnacle of a temple kind of thing. Right. Well, I'm just asking. That's an interesting question. No, on that, it's a viable question. Others, or observations, or thoughts.
1: How do you, us,
0: we, as individuals?
1: We test God all the time through our lifetime. Yeah. And, and also, we're being tested. It's a two-way thing with God.
0: And for us, t- be us being tested is appropriate. Right. Us testing God yeah. is different. There's a degree to which we can... Observe what God has done and is doing and that becomes a test, but That's simply being observant to what God has done. We see that throughout scripture. You look to see what God has done We're even told uh, prove prove me now here with see if I won't open the gates of heaven to you So yeah, there is a degree to which that's acceptable, but not like this frequently we want to try to get our own way and that's more what this is addressing, but, but within the concept or the context of sonship, what is it addressing? What kind of son of God is Jesus here? Obedient. He's showing himself to be the obedient son of God.
1: Or he's, sandbagging the, he's sandbagging
0: the devil. Oh, he's <laughs> sandbagging the devil. He's certainly doing that. He's defeating the devil. Absolutely. Huh. Um, and he's doing it through obedience, loyalty, Loyalty. doing what God says, unwilling to waver from God's will. All those concepts are part of this. Being willing to trust in God in a way that will become necessary throughout his entire ministry up to and including his death. This, This obedient sonship. There's lots of ways in which sonship could be understood. Power is one, authority is another, revelation is another. Obedience is one that is not up front and center that you would expect. Interestingly enough, both Luke and Matthew do this. This is a citation. It seems pretty clear that they're quoting something that's written and it's pretty much expected that this actually comes from that hypothetical Q document, which is probably correct. And they're using it in the exact same way. They're placing it in the same place that Mark suggests. For Mark only gives us the barest bones little introduction to the entire event. It says, verse 12 of chapter 1 of Mark, And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness He was in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. So that's how Mark relates it. No details about it, about the event, other than it's 40 days long, he's with the wild beasts, and angels wait upon him. That's it. Matthew and Luke both give us the content of what the temptations were. Verse 13. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, he's not really done. He's gonna wait until later and do it again. So we learn about Jesus's sonship as being obedient. He is the obedient Son of God. We learn how that obedience manifests itself in trusting in God and not one's own abilities or not one's own understanding of God's will and, and, and not one's twisting of God's word. One is obedient in all those ways. What, what else do we learn here about Jesus or about us? And how we're supposed to respond to temptations?
1: We seek strength and knowledge in Scripture.
0: Turn and turn to Scripture to seek strength and knowledge, guidance. Yes, absolutely. Jesus does it three times, even in re- even in the face of Satan doing it to us. <clears throat> he does it. We're supposed to do the same thing.
1: And we best be steadfast. Oh, yeah. Don't waver.
0: Oh, yeah. Steadfast. Don't, don't waver on this. Keep doing it. Expect to have part of the temptation be an attempt to spin or twist God's words to be convenient to you. Every time I see in the scripture something that looks a little too convenient for me, (laughs) I double-check it. I triple-check it. I quadruple-check it to find out, okay, is this me or is this really true? Others or observations or thoughts?
1: So how did Matthew and Luke know the details of the temptations?
0: Well, that's where the, the suspicion is, as I said earlier, that it comes from the hypothetical Q document. That this is from that written document that both Matthew and Luke had that Mark did not have.
1: Right. And what and they're doing
0: Q. is they're taking these temptations and right. placing them at that spot. Yeah,
1: I understand that.
0: story. Mm-hmm.
1: But how did Q get it?
0: Oh, how did it get to Q? Well, I mean, that's the question. Is it something that grew up over time? Is it a construction of things that Jesus had said and preached? Did he, did he use the does temptations seem, in the wilderness? Does it, it
1: seem like he necessarily would?
0: No. Not no, necessarily. it just doesn't really seem like. It. Well, there are plenty of examples of this kind of question. How do these details from this part in this story, and this is true several places throughout Luke and Acts, that that we could ask this question: How do these details get here? How did the details of the trial between Jesus and Pontius Pilate? Um, nobody... how, how was that discovered? How was that known? Well, certain certain it may have been some other soldier hanging around, but. Maybe mm-hmm. Pontius Pilate himself, but I mean, you know, Jesus didn't have any time to report it during his life. Now, maybe he told Peter about it in his resurrection. I don't think that was a big topic of this conversation between them. And I, I can't see Peter saying, "Hey, Jesus, what happened when you were in there talking with Pilate?" Well, I just don't see that happening.
1: And to whatever extent we believe that the Scripture is the revealed Word of God. Okay. Yes. The
0: the concept is is that yeah that assume Q was written by a disciple of Jesus someone who knew him let's make that assumption let's say it's Matthew let's say Matthew wrote Q then somebody else wrote Matthew (laughs) well yeah that's the basic idea Uh, let's say Matthew wrote Q Matthew would have been one of the literate disciples because he was a tax collector so he could count he could probably also write. And he remembered the teachings of Jesus and he wrote them down after Jesus' death and resurrection. This somehow gets in there. From where? Well, one of the theories is, is that Jesus told the story. Yes, That's one of the possibilities. But this is a really strange thing that doesn't necessarily jive with what we know about some of the other things that Jesus, certainly the, the, the approach that Jesus has. now. If this were in John's gospel, oh, right. it one, would be perfect. That's a whole other thing. Because this does kind of sound like a John, yeah. a Johannine sermon of yeah. Jesus. Yeah. But Jesus tended to, most of Jesus' teachings were in the form of parables. Mm-hmm. Not, not all of them, but most of them. And were.
1: they weren't in any way Jesus-centered. No,
0: Jesus almost never the center of his stories. Mm-hmm. It's possible that he could have told this in a third person and Matthew figured it out. Or it's possible that this is one of those Holy Spirit moments where it was revealed to the author of Q that this happened to Jesus. Or you could take the skeptical route and say that the author of Q is making it up. So we, we don't think I have a problem with that one. Yeah,
1: I just it it's too it works too well, and like uh, Diane here in the in the commentary has uh, carefully drawn those. Comparisons with the Israelites' right. experiences in oh, yeah. the wilderness. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. Well, and, I mean you got so hints to that in here. You got the as, forty days in the wilderness yeah. and so as
1: years, the forty years in the desert. Yes, you know,
0: uh-huh.
1: would know the Deuteronomy stuff and, right. and make those connections. I, mean, I just think there has to be some spiritual prompting.
0: There's more. Not,
1: has to there's
0: more to it than artificial construction. Mm-hmm. It predates Matthew and Luke. So it comes from a period of time in the transmission a heck of a lot closer to the life and ministry of Jesus. It contains elements that are artificial in terms of the sequence. I mean, they could almost go in any order. Although it seems like the first one ought to be the first one. Um, It does communicate something about Jesus that wouldn't necessarily be forefront in the minds of of the church. They wouldn't necessarily want to emphasize Mm -hmm. the obedience of Mm -hmm. the Messiah, huh? Certainly that wasn't a Jewish conception. Mm -hmm. The Jews saw the Messiah as victorious, deliverer. They They had a kingly, a military, or a priestly understanding of the Messiah not a suffering-servant concept, and certainly not an obedient concept. And to the extent that the Messiah is the Son of God, that's a victorious, powerful, divine appellation, not just one that's obedient. So this runs counter to the Jewish stuff, and it runs counter to the early church's desire to amplify the nature of Jesus and to say that he's all-powerful and God. So it, 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 this this really and truly does not smack of artificiality in terms of its overall const- uh, all. Uh, a composition at the time that it would have had to have come from so it, it defeats that one so this is coming from somewhere and I would be fascinated you know this this is a, I'm sure someone's done a doctoral dissertation I'm
1: sure they have it, it cries out for it yes it really does
0: <laughs> a, an analysis of this of this story to see what its origins could be within the ministry and preaching and teaching of Jesus uh, how did he tell the story? Did he tell it in a third person that there was a man, like 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 the story of Lazarus in mm-hmm. in, in heaven, and the rich man in hell or, or, or Sheol? Uh, that's told in a, in a fabulous uh, you know third person account, and yet you, you've got. Someone named Lazarus over in John's gospel who gets raised from the dead, which is a fascinating interesting parallelism there Especially since Luke and and since John seemed to know Luke uh, The the, the gospel itself nevertheless it, it that's a fascinating parallel structure maybe Jesus told this in the third person and Later on Matthew thinking about it says you know what I bet you anything that was the temptation That was the sequence of temptation and the Holy Spirit could have easily prompted Matthew as he's writing down in Q, and said, ah, uh, yeah, that's Jesus. And he just simply inserted the name and it fits perfectly. Because it's a temptationist event that occurs. And yeah, there are some, I mean, there are interne- interesting connections between this and Mark. I mean, Mark says it took 40 days. Matthew and Luke both say 40 days. And has you know, gotta be 40. 40 is a 40 fabulous days. technical number. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2015 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.